Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome back to this double episode about the award-winning documentary film Touching the Void. Um, In this episode, I'm going to continue talking about the documentary to help you to understand it a little bit more and to just basically accompany your enjoyment of this documentary, which you can find on Netflix and on DVD. Um, Also, there's a book version of it too. Um, You should know that there will be spoilers ahead because I'm going to be talking about events that happen in the story. So spoiler alert, uh, if you don't want to um, sort of listen to this uh, without having seen it, then go away and watch it on Netflix or something. Come back and listen to the rest of it. Okay. Uh, Another thing you should know is that um, there are some fairly graphic descriptions of a pretty bad injury um, coming up in this episode. So if you feel squeamish and you don't think you don't like things like bodily harm or injuries, then when I start talking about the injury, you can just skip forwards by about one minute. Okay, so I just wanted to give you a heads up that there's a little bit of uh, sort of gruesome, uh, a few gruesome descriptions, but it's all part of the events of the story. Uh, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by italki, and if you are looking for a teacher or a language partner, someone who you can learn from and practice speaking with um, in English uh, as regularly as you like from the comfort of your own home, uh, because it's all done on Skype, then check out italki, and remember that they are offering all of my listeners uh, a voucher worth $10 when they buy their first uh, lessons or talking time, and that works as a discount against future lessons that you choose to have. Try italki. A lot of my listeners are using it and having a lot of success with it, um, so it seems to be a model that genuinely works, so check it out and go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk. Uh, or click an italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. We knew a number of expeditions had failed on it. So we knew it was hard. At some point, you're going to have to rely wholly on your partner. I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for. We just lost control. I just felt it was best to get as far away as possible. I was just convinced he was dead. As soon as I saw it, I knew it had been cut. I thought, this is it. This is as far as this game goes. Hello, welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. This is part two of a two-part episode about the fantastic documentary film Touching the Void, um, which uh, tells the story of Joe Simpson and Simon Yates, these two British rock climbers who attempted to climb up um, one of the biggest mountains in the Peruvian Andes. And the climbing trip goes horribly wrong and ends up in this extraordinary battle for survival you know i strongly encourage you to get a copy of the documentary on dvd or you can find it on netflix um, and watch it with and without the subtitles it could be really good uh, to watch the film uh, to practice your english um and uh you can also get a book of touching the void written by by joe simpson um so you could read that book as well anyway in part one 
I explained some of the background to the story and who Joe and Simon were, these two British climbers who decided to try and climb up the Siula Grand, which is one of the biggest uh, uh, mountains in uh, the Andes. And um, they decided to climb up the western face, which no one had ever done before. And over the course of, what is it, two, three days... Uh, they managed to get to the top in three days, even though it felt like a bit of a life and death situation on the way up as they climbed through very harsh conditions um, and climbing through powder snow in formations that they'd never experienced before. Uh, apparently, the both of them, when they got to the top, were completely exhausted and uh, vowed that they would never climb a mountain in the Andes again because the conditions were so awful. Also, if you remember, they brought with them enough gas to brew water to last them for about four days. And um, already, at this point, they've got to the top after three days, but already we can see that the conditions are harder than they expected. So three to four days of water, is that going to be enough? And how are they managed? How are they going to manage to get down this um, this brutal, challenging mountain uh, in one piece? Because we know that eighty percent of accidents on mountains happen on descent. So actually, they may not have realised it, but the hardest parts of the climb were yet to come. So they've got to the top, uh, over six thousand metres up. They've got to the top, and their plan was then to climb back down the north ridge and then abseil down a part of the north face. Abseiling is when you use ropes to kind of lower yourself down. It's kind of like walking down the mountain using uh, ropes. So that was their plan. Walk down the north ridge and abseil down a part of the north face. But then the clouds started coming in again and uh, everything got um, uh, overcast. They got surrounded by cloud and snow and the walk along the north ridge apparently was much harder than they expected so essentially walking down the ridge you know like mountains have got ridges that go down the the the, the kind of go down the side and if you can get onto a ridge it's possible to climb all the way up along the ridge but it's quite precarious because there are usually sharp drops on either side of the ridge I mean, the ridge itself often can be very, very steep, but also the the slopes on the side of the ridge uh, sometimes are like vertical drops in some cases. Uh, So they had to walk down this ridge with um, these, you know, these overhanging drops on both sides, vertical on one side with overhangs. That's where the snow hangs over the edge. So you don't really know where it's safe to walk and also these steep flutings flutings of snow running down the the side these are like grooves going down on the other side so you wouldn't know if you were stepping on something safe or not while walking down the ridge as they were descending with the weather setting in uh the harsh weather setting in apparently things started to get a little bit out of control i don't know if you've ever been in a situation where there's a bit of danger and a bit of risk or something and things to you get the feeling that things are slipping out of control a little bit events start to kind of take over and you realize that you're not in control of the situation uh it must have felt like panic you know when they realized that the conditions were too much for them and things were getting out of control apparently they got lost and they were in a whiteout like a huge snowstorm unable to see anything completely lost they didn't know if they were going in the right direction now their plan was to get down that day they thought they'd be able to get down to the bottom in one day but by the the time the sun went down they were still very high up the mountain still over six thousand meters up and so they built themselves a snow cave and that night Uh, while they were making a brew of water their gas ran out so six thousand meters up in the middle of a snowstorm in the middle of the night and the gas runs out can you imagine what that must have felt like so on day four uh, they woke up in the snow cave they had a look outside and they could see that they'd managed to get down the worst part of the ridge which must have been a bit of a relief 
and Simon thought that they'd get down the rest of the mountain that day. In fact, he said he thought the whole climb was in the bag. If you say something is in the bag, it means that you're certain to achieve it. You think you're definitely going to get it. So he thought that the uh, the whole climb was in the bag, but he was wrong. So Joe was climbing in the front, Simon behind him. And Joe, As Joe was climbing down the, the rest of the ridge, he reached at one point a vertical wall, a, bit, uh, a, a wall falling down in front of him, like a big drop in front of him. He reached this wall. So he started to lower himself off the wall. Now, the method of lowering yourself down an ice wall is that you use pickaxes with your hands and the spikes on your feet. So you kind of, you lower yourself down, you spike yourself in to the ice with your feet and you, you know, you hammer the pickaxes into the the ice with your hands. So apparently Joe was lowering himself down and at one point he swung his pickaxe into the ice and it made a strange sound and so he decided to take it out and place it in again now i guess as a climber you start you get a sense of whether you've made a good placement you start to get a sense of the character of the mountain the sounds it makes you know the feel of it and apparently he just he placed the axe in and it just felt strange made a weird sound so he tried to take it out and place it in again he was about to swing again so he was swinging the um, axe back and the whole piece of ice that he was attached to the entire piece of ice that he was attached to with his feet and his left hand just came off like a pancake just the whole thing like a plate just came off the the mountain and so he fell through the air fell down this vertical wall and he landed hard on his leg and it broke uh it broke really badly and not just a fracture not just a crack but the the leg broke seriously a, a really serious break and apparently pain flew up his thigh from his knee and it was incredibly painful now, I've never broken my leg, and I hope that I never do, because I'm sure it's horrible. Now, I have injured myself before, but not too seriously. Now, I've, of course, I've cut my fingers on knives and things like that. And, you know, when you injure yourself, you know that feeling, even if you just cut your finger with a knife. Um, when you injure yourself, there's a kind of a shock, especially a kind of shock where at first you think it could be serious. You know, we all experience that. If you cut your finger with a knife and you feel the knife go in and it's like, whoo, a big shock. And you're like, oh my God. And it's like a sense of a little bit of panic. And you think, oh my God, I might have seriously hurt myself. How bad is it? How serious is it? Now, most of the time, that feeling just goes away when you realize it's not that bad. But if it is serious, then you get this dreadful feeling that comes on, like a truly dreadful feeling that comes from the realization of just how difficult and inconvenient things are going to get it's not just the pain but also the fact that you now have this injury which is going to make everything so damn hard for you okay like for example imagine you you're out and you have an injury and you've got all the inconvenience of getting to a safe place getting to hospital managing to get home um, you know, of dealing with the things that you had to do that day. Now imagine that feeling, that dreadful feeling of suddenly life is going to become really difficult. Imagine having that feeling when you're 6,000 meters up the side of a freezing mountain in Peru with no water and no medical services anywhere near you. Now, I don't know about you, but I would feel more than dread at that point. I think I would feel pretty hopeless. I imagine I would feel more than the pain and the inconvenience, but there would all there'd be all this emotion as well, like this anger, tragedy and sadness. Can you imagine? So anyway, Joe at this point was mainly feeling the intense pain of a badly broken leg. And here's actually what happened to his leg, and this is pretty horrible, okay? So if you're a bit squeamish, this is gonna be a slightly horrible bit. The impact of the fall Basically, his whole body fell on his one leg 
and the impact of the fall caused his knee joint to actually split. Now, the joint, obviously, that's the place where the two bones meet. And let's say um, your, I guess it's your femur, the thigh bone. Uh, femur is like one of the biggest bones in your body. And the femur, as it meets your knee, the end of that bone has got like a, it's got a round end on it, you know, uh, where it meets the joint. Now, apparently, that joint at the end of his femur split. And the bone from the lower leg went all the way up through the knee joint and it split the end of his femur and then it carried on up the leg. So the lower bone sliced a big part of the uh, the end of his femur off and then carried on all the way up. It's it's like he got stabbed by his own bone on the inside of his leg. Can you imagine? I mean, it's it's I can't really imagine it, but... All those ligaments completely ruined the bone, the cartilage, the nerve endings, and of course the blood vessels, which would have been broken by that. Now, the whole leg would have been completely unusable, of course, but also there was a lot of internal bleeding going on inside his leg, not to mention the debilitating pain. Now, apparently he just couldn't cope with the pain at all at the beginning. He just couldn't deal with it. But after breathing for a while, he did manage to start getting a grip on the pain but at that point, he thought he was done for. He thought he was finished. Because he, he, he had a lookout and he was still level with the peaks of some of the other mountains in the area. So he was still, at the, still above some of the other mountains. Um, he tried to stand on, on the leg and it was impossible. Absolutely impossible. Unbearable pain. Simon eventually arrived and he describes seeing Joe's face. He says it's a complex mix of terror and pain and anguish. And Simon said to him, are you okay? And apparently Joe at this point nearly said, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Because, you know, that's what we say to that question. That's the standard thing we always say, even if you're not fine. Like, for example, if you get to work and, you're, you know, your dog died the night before and you feel devastated and people are like, hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Even though you're devastated. So apparently Joe considered saying yeah fine thanks just out of the social custom but actually he said no I've broken my leg and immediately at that point Simon thought oh god that's it we're stuffed we're not going to make it now what would you do if you were Simon and Joe here at this point okay so let's imagine first of all that you're Joe so you're 6,000 meters up um, and um 6,000 metres up, no water, you've just fallen and really seriously badly broken your leg. Your leg is unusable and you're in terrible, terrible pain. And your mate Simon is there. So you could say, look, mate, you've got to help me. Or you say, look, I'm stuffed. Go ahead without me. I'm not going to make it. Or do you say, don't you dare leave me. Now, which one are you going to say? Now, how about your Simon? You're 6,000 metres up, blah, 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 and your friend has broken his leg and it, there's no way he can stand, let alone walk, and you're 6,000 metres up a, a mountain. What are you going to say to him? You're going to say, look, mate, don't worry. We're going to get you down this mountain. Or you say, look, Joe, you're not going to make it. Do you have anything you want me to say to your parents, to your family? Do you have any messages for your loved ones? Or do you say to him, wait here, and I'll go and get help and I'll come back for you, I promise. Which one would you say? Now, obviously, Joe is the one with the broken leg and the pain. But Simon also is in a difficult situation here because they're partners. Getting a guy with a broken leg down a mountain is going to be really, really difficult. And Simon's the one who's got to deal with that. Uh, now, according to Joe, Simon gave him some, some painkillers, which did nothing. And they just didn't talk about it for a few, mo few moments because they both knew that Simon had no choice, that Simon, if Simon was going to survive, that he was going to have to leave Joe there because they couldn't get Joe down from the mountain without risking both of their lives in the process. So Joe quite reasonably thought that Simon would just leave him there because there was no other choice. Now, meanwhile, Richard, the third guy, uh, at this point is sitting at the base camp wondering what's happened to them because they're both late. He's sitting there thinking that they might both be dead 
and that he'd somehow just find them at the bottom of the mountain because he thought that they would just fall off the mountain. They'd fall off the mountain and they'd just fall all the way to the bottom. Uh, This is what was going through Richard's head. He had no idea. Now, there wasn't really anything Richard could do because they were they were many many miles away from civilization and richard didn't even know where they were uh, and there was no ambulance service to call no mobile phones in the 1980s when this happened so he had to just sit and wait and see back on the mountain simon pulled himself together to think about how he was going to get joe down the mountain and he decided that he was going to try and save him and he had to come up with a practical solution So, I mean, this story, Simon received a bit of criticism after this story, as we'll see. But you see in moments like this that actually he's, I think he kind of saved Joe's life. Anyway, um, so the practical solution that Simon had to come up with was that he would just lower Joe down the mountain on a rope. He'd just slide him down the mountain on a rope. Okay, so... He would like Joe would slide down the mountain and and Simon would like um, let the rope out of his hands bit by bit, making sure that uh, Joe didn't fall off the mountain completely, but he would slide him down with a rope. So what he did was he tied two 150 foot ropes together. Okay, Um, so two 150 foot ropes tied together to make about 300 uh, feet, which is, I guess, about 100 meters long. Um, and so he tied these two ropes and there was a knot in the middle. So Simon was attached to one end and Joe was attached on the other end. And so uh, uh, Simon started to slide Joe down, letting the rope through the belay device. So the belay device is just a device that you use for climbing and it allows him to regulate the movement of the rope so that uh, Joe could be safely uh, sort of lowered down the mountain. And then when the knot tying the two ropes together when the knot got to the belay device he would have to stop letting joe slide and joe would then have to stand up to take the weight off the rope and then simon would unattach the rope from the device let the knot through and then reattach the rope and let it continue for the rest of the 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 second rope okay so uh joe had to every now and then take the weight off the rope which mean which meant that it, he had the painful process of trying to stand up and take the weight off and then when joe finally uh was at the end of the rope simon would down climb to join him so they would go in this method all the way down and they continued like this for quite a long time repeating the process letting joe slide down then letting the knot through the rope letting joe slide down further and then uh, simon climbing down now um Simon was letting Joe slide down quite quickly, conscious of the time running out and the fact that they needed to get down to the bottom as quickly as possible. So at times, like this must have been excruciating for Joe, incredibly painful, if you imagine, with this terrible broken leg. Um, and there, there were apparently some, these interpersonal things going on between them. Apparently, Joe kept wondering if Simon was pissed off he was wondering if Simon was really annoyed and angry with Joe. Um, because these are the things that you think about when you're with a friend doing something. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone on like a, a, a mountain climbing trip with a friend? Or have you gone camping or gone on holiday with a friend? Sometimes you do wonder if your friend is annoyed with you. You know, sometimes you fall out with each other and you kind of wonder whether the other person is pissed off with you. So... Uh, apparently Joe was wondering if Simon was really annoyed by it but I think actually Simon must also have been suffering from shock and panic as well and to an extent he now held a lot of the responsibility for both of them because Joe was completely completely out of action so basically this was a single-handed mountain rescue by Simon in extremely difficult conditions it must have been a desperate desperate feeling for both of them what they didn't know at the time though was that this was still just the start and that it would get a lot worse and that something awful was approaching that they had no idea about. 
So they continued going down the mountain in this fashion, Joe badly injured, in shock and losing blood into his leg, both of them exhausted, both dehydrated at altitude and close to hypothermia. It was a race against time uh, for them to save Joe's life and maybe for Simon to get out of the whole thing alive as well. A race against time. Then the weather turned bad again. And within within an hour or two, they were descending in a full storm with wind chill factor of something like 80, minus 80 degrees wind chill. Um, minus 80 degrees. They couldn't dig a cave and rehydrate because they'd run out of gas. There was nothing that they could do. And apparently at this point, they lost control and completely started panicking, flying down this mountain in this desperate fashion. And as they made some relatively good progress, albeit in such awful conditions, Simon eventually started feeling a sense of hope because he could see that they were virtually down the mountain. They were almost down to the, the bottom of the worst, steepest part. And for Simon at this point, things started looking up. I say reach the bottom of the mountain. In reality, there were lots of different sections and terrains between the summit and the camp. And in fact, from the top to the bottom, there are different sections. So you've got the peak at the top, which is the absolute top. Then there's the ridge, which is the the bit that leads up to the top. Then the face, which is the the, the steep, like often vertical part. And then you get the less steep part of the face, which is like the approach to the face. And then after that, there's the uh, the glacier which is like this huge river of ice that flows all the way from the top of the mountain range all the way down to the riverbed at the bottom of the mountain, slowly moving ice, uh, slowly moving down, carving out the valley as it goes, crushing rock underneath it, full of crevasses, which are these massive cracks in the glacier with drops that go down all the way to the floor, all the way to the riverbed of the glacier. So they uh they they had a perilous landscape to to navigate even after they get off the glacier there's this uh bottom of the glacier which is full of these huge rock boulders and stones with water trickling underneath them a long section of this rocky terrain and then finally base camp next to a glacial pool and then god knows how far it was f- uh f- to to get to civilization from the base camp so Anyway, they were nearly down the mountain face, approaching the glacier. And for Simon, he could see a glimmer of hope at this point. Until suddenly, Joe slipped off a cliff. Now, neither of them realised it was coming. But Joe, as he was being you know, lowered down the mountain on the rope, suddenly felt the ground under him get icier and more and more steep, and he started slipping faster and faster, going like a roller coaster downwards, screaming at Simon to stop, but Simon couldn't hear him, and Simon had no idea it was happening, just assuming that Joe was going faster over some steeper ground. And then suddenly, whoosh, Joe slipped right off the edge of a cliff, and was left dangling in the air, right above a massive crevasse dangling off a cliff above a huge crack in the mountain that went straight down into pure darkness. Probably a crack that went all the way down to the bottom of the the glacier. A really, really, really big hole into pure darkness, the void. So Joe was hanging over this void, over this huge abyss, about 80 feet between him and the opening of the crevasse, and then just darkness. God knows how deep it was. So that's the problem from Joe's point of view. He's hanging there over this hole. And hanging there with his broken leg um, off the edge of the cliff. And there's there's not really uh, much that, that Joe could do. Apparently what he tried to do was construct this little uh, technique using another piece of rope which he could use to climb up the rope i don't know how you do it but apparently you can make a knot which allows you to sort of pull yourself up and the knot tightens and then you can pull yourself up bit by bit so he was trying to construct this thing but his hands must have been so frozen you know tying the knots with these tiny with this tiny little rope his hands were so frozen that they could hardly hold onto the rope and at one point he dropped the rope and the drop the rope 
the little rope he was using sailed down into the crevasse. And at that point, I expect that so- that Joe just gave up hope. Um, he just gave up hope because there was no way that he could get himself out of that situation, dangling at the end of the rope. There's no way of climbing up. His hands were frozen solid. Uh, and so at this point, he gave up hope. And he would have died because hypothermia began to set in. Uh, he would have died at this point, uh, but something else happened. Now, from Simon's point of view, Simon is is up above Joe, sitting there, and he can't pull the he can't let the uh, let the knot through the belay device. Um, he knows that Joe that something's happened to Joe, but. There's no way of communicating with him. No way of uh, communicating with Joe. Uh, But what's happening is that it's dark in the middle of a snowstorm and Simon is sitting there trying not to get himself pulled off the side of the mountain. So let's just think about Simon's situation. What What would you have done in that situation? So you're there. Obviously, Joe has slipped off the edge of something. We don't know what's going on on the other side of that, uh, the, the, under, the other end of that rope. Um, so Simon's got to think, what's, what am I going to do? And after a while, Simon is starting to get pulled off the side. The situation is becoming less and less tenable, really. If he doesn't do something, he's going to get pulled off the side of the, the, the mountain. So Simon, at this point, felt like he had no choice. Either he gets pulled off with joe and they both die or he cuts the rope and simon cut the rope he cut the rope and then it must have been an incredibly difficult decision this is the controversial point in the climbing community apparently simon took a little bit of criticism for this but i mean i i can't see another way that he could have done it so he cut the rope and then dug himself a snow cave at night. Now, meanwhile, Joe, hanging there, waiting to die, suddenly drops into the crevasse. Okay? Now, Simon has assumed that Joe uh, has died or something. He's got no idea, but all he knows is that he couldn't have stayed in that situation any longer because he would eventually have been pulled off the side of the mountain too. But Joe has fallen into the crevasse and he he wasn't dead. He survived the fall and somehow landed on a little ledge in the crevasse, not that far from the top. So he didn't go all the way into the bottom of the crevasse. He landed on a little ledge and survived. Unbelievable. So night falls. Simon has dug himself into a snow cave. He's suffering from shock. He's got hypothermia um, and he's dehydrated. So we follow Simon as he goes down the the mountain the next day, suffering from shock in a serious condition, Simon, and also seriously emotionally traumatised by what had happened. Apparently he said, as he was going down the mountain, that he was convinced that he was going to die as well. But he he walked down... uh, you know, climbed down the, uh, the, 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 the mountain there. And he then saw the huge crevasse that Joe must have fallen into. He saw the huge cliff and the crevasse that Joe would have fallen into. And he realized at that point that there's no way that Joe could have survived it. I mean, that's what he thought. There was no way. He called out for, for, for Joe. He called his name again and again, couldn't find him. He assumed he was dead and he assumed that he was going to die himself. And he, and yet he continued climbing down the mountain. Um, now, what about Joe? So at this point, Joe is stuck on a ledge um, on the edge of the crevasse. And the first thing he did was to attach himself to the ice wall of the glacier. So he, he put in a, a screw in the wall and attached himself to the wall of the glacier so that he wouldn't slip off. And he called for Simon again and again. And he pulled the rope. He pulled the, the rope to get to see what was on the end. He assumed that Simon would have fallen off the side and that Simon was dead on the you know on the other side of the mountain ab- above him he assumed that so he pulled the rope to see if he could pull himself out with the rope but he kept pulling and eventually saw that the rope had been cut 
And apparently he didn't blame Simon for it. He understood why he did it. But at that point, he realized that it would be impossible to get out. He tried, apparently, to climb uh, from the ledge to get out of the crevasse, but it was absolutely impossible. He had a broken leg. There were overhangs, ice, absolutely impossible to get out. And at this point, apparently, Joe sort of lost it. You know, he just sort of broke down at this point and just lost it. And he, he says that he, fa- he came face to face with his own death. He knew at that point that it was the end. Um, as he was lying there on this ledge, looking down into the darkness, the void of the crevasse, he came face to face, face with his own death and he accepted it. And he says that he didn't have a religious moment. He said that he just knew that nobody was coming to save him. Even though he'd been raised as a as a Catholic, he'd been raised as a devout Catholic, um, he at some point had decided that he didn't believe in the existence of God. And even at that moment, when he was facing his own death, he knew that there was no God. No one came to save him. It was just the abyss, just the void. And apparently it filled him with fear. Um and imagine the worst darkness. Imagine that fear of the dark that we all have. You know, when you go outside, you might go out in the forest or something and you step out and there are no lights and it's pitch black. And there's this, the darkness has got this sort of atmosphere to it. It's almost like a presence and it really makes you scared right to your to your core when you're walking out into darkness where there are no people you just get this horrible malignant feeling from the darkness like there's something out there it's primal it really is now imagine um being on this ledge and looking into the the depths of this dark abyss and the fear that joe must have felt apparently he felt extremely scared of being in this very creepy place really on his own Um, he felt really scared he also apparently felt extremely angry and he was angry and shouting and cursing and punching the walls of the crevasse and he felt like that this wasn't the end of his life he felt like this isn't the way that he wanted to go you know he, he said that i never intended for it to to end like this And what's impressive at this moment in the story is Joe's bravery and his refusal to give up. And this is one of the most impressive moments that's always stuck with me. And Joe says in the documentary, you hear him say, you've got to keep making decisions, even if they're wrong decisions. If you don't make decisions, you're stuffed. So that was the impressive thing for me is that even though it looked like the end, uh, he decided to continue making decisions he decided not to give up now joe could have stayed on that ledge he could have just given up and died but he chose to keep making decisions he chose to keep to keep moving forwards even if he didn't know if those decisions were right he chose to continue making decisions and it just shows that you must not let things just happen to you don't just let yourself be carried away by events don't be the object of events you've got to be the one in control never stop making decisions and never let yourself just be carried away by events even if you feel hopeless even if you feel like all the options are screwed and that you'll fail no matter what happens never stop making decisions you have to continue and keep going it's like that famous quote which is often attributed to winston churchill that quote which is if you're going through hell keep going Basically, don't give up when things are hard and when things are hellish. You've got to keep moving. Don't just stop and let things happen to you, especially when you're in hell. That's no time to stop. You're in hell. You've got to keep moving, keep going, and the chances are that you'll get out. So Joe decided to use the remaining rope that he had in order to lower himself into the crevasse. I mean, he chose to go into the darkness he thought that maybe he'd managed to reach the bottom of the crevasse and that there might be some chance of getting out. So 
he lowered himself down into the darkness, apparently petrified, scared to death of this dark hole that he was lowering himself into. He lowered himself down and he reached like the bottom or what he felt was the bottom. He reached the bottom of the crevasse and he slowly started crawling along what he thought was the bottom. Now, I say what he thought was the bottom because actually, at that point, as he was crawling along the uh, the bottom of the crevasse, he heard a really horrible, terrifying sound. And what he heard was the sound of cracking and crumbling underneath him. So actually, it wasn't the bottom of the crevasse. It's just where some of the snow had collected and some ice had collected. And he was crawling across this uneven uh, ground, which wasn't even the bottom. So he could feel, he could hear it all crumbling away underneath him. So he thought that any minute, the whole ground he was on was going to crumble away and that he would fall even further into the crevasse. Imagine the fear of that, of him trying to crawl with his broken leg. He kept going, he kept going, and eventually he noticed all the way up into the distance at the top uh, a little spot of light, just a tiny little spot of light with a beam of light coming through. And that, for Joe, was hope. That represented his hope. And he, and he thought to himself, I can make it. I can get up to that hole. And if I can get out, I can survive and I can make it out of this situation. So that little little bit of light must have represented this incredible joy of this light, you know. And he did. He managed to crawl his way all the way up to the little hole, and he emerged again out of the mountain, like born again, onto the side of the mountain. And apparently that feeling where he just pulled himself out of this hole, and there he was on the side of the mountain in the sunshine... Apparently, that was an incredible feeling. I mean, what an, um, what an unbelievable story of being able to, of, of, of these events of like this horror, pain, the fear, and then this joy, this pure joy of having gotten out of the crevasse and on the side of the mountain in the sunshine. It must have been amazing. But he was just out of the frying pan and into the fire because this was still really just the beginning of his challenge. He noticed Simon's tracks. He actually could see Simon's uh, tracks going down the side of the mountain. So he decided to follow Simon's tracks, crawling, basically crawling with his elbows. Night fell, the sun went down and he continued crawling in the dark until he couldn't go any further. And he somehow managed to, cr- to create a snow cave where he rested. Uh, on day six, Simon's tracks had all gone. All of Simon's tracks had gone. Uh, They'd been blown away or covered by snow. But the sun was out and he could actually get a view of the huge challenge that was ahead of him. And he could see from that vantage point that he had to go all the way down the rest of the mountain and then onto the glacier. And then he had to navigate all of the rocky uh, landscape uh, beyond the glacier and when he saw this massive challenge apparently he nearly gave up uh, he he nearly gave up when he realized how far he had to go the challenge overwhelmed him almost completely now this is what i was talking about before about the when you see a whole challenge laid out in front of you i described it as like looking up to the top of a mountain and wondering how you'd make it but this here really in the story is where joe realized the full extent of the challenge that was ahead of him so the stuff that he'd done already like sliding down the mountain um going down into the crevasse crawling along the bottom crawling out the other end uh that was really nothing compared with the uh, the 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 distance that he had to cover and the difficult landscape that he had in front of him so he was presented with this massive maze near the bottom of the glacier so where the glacier was flowing down and cracking you know this cracked glacier that he had to navigate like this massive maze full of crevasses creating all these little pathways with huge holes uh, on each side joe had to shuffle his way through all of that um and um i mean it took him like most of the day to get through all of this 
and apparently he would like go through one little stretch of the maze and realize it was the wrong way and he'd have to crawl back and go the right way getting through this maze this dangerous maze with these crevasses on either side he eventually got to the end of the glacier he got to the rocks at the edge now if crawling along the snow and the ice wasn't bad enough this was even harder the rocks presented a much much harder terrain for him to navigate and he couldn't crawl anymore because it was just boulders like big boulders you can't crawl through that kind of stuff so he had to try and walk somehow now of course with the broken leg walking was just almost impossible and what he did was he created a splint a splint is like a um, like a uh, I guess usually it's a piece of wood or something that gives support to a broken limb and he used his sleeping mat you know those kind of like uh, soft uh, mats that you roll up uh, and take with you uh, when you go camping and you sleep on them he used his sleeping mat as a kind of splint he wrapped it around his leg and tightened it with belts and he discarded all of his other gear he got rid of everything else that he was carrying so that he wasn't heavy and with his leg in this kind of improvised splint he then had to try and hop all the way uh, through these boulders and you can see that it was an absolutely horrendous experience of trying to get through the boulders and through the rocks hopping and falling onto the rocks getting up and continuing falling virtually every single hop like breaking his leg again every single time it must have been just unbelievably painful and apparently 25 just 25 yards of this took him absolutely ages and caused him so much pain um so I mean, I don't know how he endured. I mean, the, the distance he had to travel and the pain that every single step caused him. It's just unbelievable. But he describes himself as being an insanely stubborn person at times. Stubborn, which should be spelled S-T-U-B-B-O-R-N. Um, stubborn. Uh, and that helped him. That stubbornness apparently really helped him continue. It worked to his advantage because he was determined not to be beaten by the situation. He wanted to have it his way. And this, for me, is where the second most impressive part comes. The first one is never stop making decisions, keep going. But this this is the second most impressive bit that stays with me. What he did was he broke up the challenge into little bits. He said, right, I'll get to that rock in 20 minutes. And everything became about getting to the next rock in just 20 minutes and then the next 20 minute challenge and the next 20 20 minute challenge and so on he became obsessed with these targets if he got to the rock in 18 minutes he'd be absolutely over the moon ecstatic but if he got to the rock in 22 minutes he'd be furious with himself everything became about the these smaller challenges of getting to each rock within 20 minutes And this is another thing that we can learn about achieving something big. It's true. Trying to achieve one huge thing can seem impossible. You might look at the whole challenge and think, there's no way I can do that. But the key is to set a series of small goals and just try to reach each small goal and then another small goal and another one. You break it down into little chunks and you'll be able to do it. Looking at the whole whole challenge doesn't help. It dwarfs you. You feel small. So you've got to break it down into chunks. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. It's like something my dad said to me about how to eat an elephant, which does sound a bit weird, doesn't it? Because <laughs> you're trying to think, you, you might think, why, why are you trying to eat an elephant? I'm not trying to eat an elephant. I've never tried to eat an elephant, but it's just a metaphor that my dad said to me once about how you eat an elephant. See, the thing is about my dad is that he often tends to be right about things. It's quite annoying when you're having a discussion or a debate with him because he always somehow ends up being right. But it's also great because I've learned some pearls of wisdom from him in the past. Now, I don't know where he got this one from himself. Maybe he got it from his dad. But anyway, anyway, when I was a child, I think I was talking to him about how I was finding uh, finding it a school project difficult i had this project to do at school and it was really difficult and i think we were even like walking in the garden uh uh <laughs> just walking in the garden with my dad i know that sounds like it's too good to be true like it's like something out of a kung fu movie or something you know i was walking through the garden with my dad and he gave me a piece of wisdom like something out of 
uh, a Star Wars movie, you know, tell me, Father, how can I train in the Force and become a Jedi? You know, and anyway, I think I was talking to him about, I was talking to him about my homework and I said, Dad, I can't do this history project. It's really difficult. And he, I think he just dropped some deep wisdom on me and he said, well, Luke, how do you eat an elephant? Uh, and I was like, what? What are you talking about? He said, well, how do you eat an elephant? Uh, and he said, how do you eat an elephant? Uh, the way you eat an elephant is you eat it one spoon at a time. Uh, and I was like, oh, wow, that's deep, Dad. Thanks for the wisdom. So the point is that, you know, seeing the challenge as one thing can destroy your motivation. But step by step, bit by bit, that's how you get a big thing done. And don't give up. And you have to have drive. You have to be stubborn. You have to be motivated. Listen to that army captain that you've got in your head, the one that shouts orders at you. Listen to that army captain and obey him. Um, all right. So Joe says that at times he felt like there were two voices in his head. One of them saying, come on, let's rest here in the sun. It's nice. You can just lie down and go to sleep. And another part of him, which was completely unsympathetic, saying, no, no, you've got to get to that rock. Now, come on, get up and go. Now, I think we all have that inside us. We all have that cold, pragmatic voice, which seems a bit frightening or something, but we do just have to listen to it sometimes in order to get things done. Now, obviously, Joe was in serious seriously bad physical condition at this point exhaustion seriously broken leg internal bleeding shock frostbite hunger injuries from his falls but he also started falling apart mentally as well um now apparently he had that feeling of there being several voices in his head or several parts of his mind you know, that one I was talking about, the sort of sympathetic one and the, the strict one, that feeling apparently got stronger and stronger with one part being this cold, pragmatic feeling of just relentlessly getting to the next point and the next one after that. And the other part of him was just almost disconnected as his mind was wandering away from what was actually happening, as if he was just observing it all from a distance. It must have been seriously strange and disturbing. And um, and apparently he could also hear the sound of water, the sound of trickling water, because underneath all of the big boulders that he was trying to navigate, there would have been running water underneath it. And he could apparently hear the trickling sound of water and it started driving him mad. Um, night fell on day six and he lay on his back on a rock, staring up at the stars and apparently he started just losing his mind and he became quite unhinged, having these bizarre psychedelic out-of-body experiences. And he said that he felt like he was becoming part of the rocks. He was becoming part of the mountain and that he, he lost all sense of time, feeling that he'd been lying there for centuries. Um, it must have been really weird. Um, and so day seven started and joe is still alive he still isn't dead at the beginning of day seven unbelievably uh meanwhile simon and richard so simon has got to the bottom of the the, the mountain he's got back to richard at base camp um and simon and richard on at the beginning of day seven are preparing to leave the next morning simon has been spending the last couple of days feeling really guilty suffering from shock uh from trauma and just trying to deal with you know what had happened um and wondering how he was going to tell everyone about what had happened and they were getting ready to leave the next day at some point on day seven joe managed to find water he found some water running through like a dirty little stream and apparently this was an incredible moment that drinking the water he could feel the life flowing back into his body and he lay there for a while drinking and he realised that he needed the toilet and he couldn't kind of get himself in a position to pee. So he just peed himself and he, he apparently lay there uh, wetting himself and apparently he sort of enjoyed the sensation. It was kind of like this warm feeling and he quite enjoyed it. But then afterwards, when he realised what had happened, he felt like totally undignified. He felt like all of his dignity had been robbed he just felt like this disgusting, undignified creature. 
But after having the water, Joe realised that he still could make it, that he, he could do it. But he was hit really hard by the idea that Simon and Richard might have gone. They might have left. But he continued going, even though he was totally delusional. His mind had become completely unhinged um, and completely delusional. Apparently, he was thinking that while he was walking or hopping or crawling, he kept thinking that Simon and Richard were, for some reason, following behind him. They were kind of following just behind him, but they were choosing not to come and help him because they didn't want uh, they didn't want to embarrass him because he'd wet himself. So he had this idea. He was convinced for hours that they were just behind him and that they were just there. And then after hours of thinking this, he suddenly realised that they weren't there at all. And he describes feeling utterly hopeless and alone and distraught at that moment and he he, apparently he considered getting inside his sleeping bag and just lying there but again he felt like that was just too pathetic and he didn't want to end his life like that so he had to just carry on even though part of him was was saying come on let's just stop he carried on and the sun went down on day seven and at that point apparently joe completely lost it he just couldn't hold his mind together anymore at that point. And apparently he was just completely bewildered, experiencing total confusion and complete madness. He totally lost track of time. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know who he was or what was happening. He tried to look at his watch, but he just couldn't work out what it meant. He couldn't work out what time it was. And apparently the worst thing about this was that he got a song caught in his head. Uh, he got this song caught in his head, which is uh, a Boney M song, Brown Girl in the Ring by Boney M, which is one of the most annoying songs that you could have in in your head. I mean, I don't know if you know that song. Let me try and find it here on the, on the internet. Apparently, that's the song that was going round and round and round in his head, even though he didn't even like Boney M. It's weird, isn't it, the way that happens? You know, the way you get songs stuck in your head? Isn't that strange? You know when you can't sleep, right? I mean, it happens to everyone. You know those nights when you can't sleep and you're lying there and it's like 4 a.m. and you feel like you're losing your mind because you really need to sleep or you've got like an important thing to do the next day and you're lying there and you just get a song caught in your head really vividly going round and round in your head. Not even the whole song, just part of it. Imagine that experience, but just a thousand times worse. It must have been like being trapped in hell. And apparently it really upset him. He felt really emotionally upset with this song going round his head because he really wanted to think of like other things He really wanted to be able to think of his family and his friends and other things that were important to him at that moment. But he couldn't think of anything else because of this bloody song going round. Apparently he thought, bloody hell, I'm going to die to Boney M. So apparently he would drift off, lose consciousness and then wake up thinking that he was in a pub car park, drunk. You know, he just didn't know where he was or what was going on. He thought maybe he was drunk and he'd he'd fallen asleep in a pub car park or he'd been beaten up or something. He kept completely losing it. He was totally delirious. And then at one point, he woke up. He kind of snapped back into consciousness because of a strong smell. You know, like smelling salts. You know, if someone passes out or faints, you make them smell this stuff that kind of brings them back to consciousness. Apparently, he smelt something really strong, which acted like smelling salts uh, and brought him back to consciousness. And what had ha- what had happened was that he'd actually crawled into the toilet area of their campsite. He crawled into the toilet area and he was crawling through the all of the, the waste in the toilet area of their campsite. So after all of that, after breaking his leg on the mountain, falling into the crevasse, going down into the crevasse, crawling out and crawling all the way through the glacier and the rocks and, and all of that stuff, 
he ends up crawling through their own shit and piss at the end. Unbelievable. But it did give him hope that Simon and Richard might still be there. He knew that he'd reached the camp and he called out for Simon at that point, but he got no reply. And for Joe at this point, this was the end for him. This is when he finally knew that he was finished. And he described how he then completely lost himself at that moment. He described it as like ego death. I Did he describe it as ego death? I don't know if he described it, but it sounds like that. You know, like totally losing himself. He basically died at that point. Now, because Simon and Richard were still in their tents, uh, ready to leave the next morning, they were actually still there. And apparently Richard uh, woke up in the middle of the night because he thought he heard something. He woke up in the darkness because he thought he heard a voice. Now imagine you're in, in, in the tent. This is, this is about four days after Simon got back. Four days after they thought Joe had died, falling to his death. So imagine you're in the tent. You're feeling terrible anyway. And you're ready to leave the next day. You're in the tent, surrounded by darkness. You can imagine the wind blowing across the fabric of the tent, the shadow of the mountains in the background, with the knowledge that your, the body of your friend is still up there, that your friend has just died. Now, being in a tent in the, in the wilderness is kind of creepy enough anyway, because you're surrounded by darkness and you don't know what's out there. And the wind blows and it's pretty weird. But imagine that you've, you've just lost your friend and you, you're lying there in the darkness and then you wake up and you freeze because you're sure that you've just heard something and you hear it again, but you think it can't be true. It sounded like a voice on the wind. Apparently Richard waited, listening, and he, he heard it again and it really scared him, this voice on the wind, because he wasn't sure if it was real or if he was imagining it or if it, if it was a ghost or something. But he could definitely hear a voice. He decided to check on Simon in the other tent, and he discovered that Simon was already up, and that Simon had heard the voice too, and he was convinced that it was Joe. And they, they went out, and they searched for him, shouting his name, and they found him on the ground, just a few minutes from the campsite. And what they found was the body of joe like some kind of ghost or some sort of monster because joe was in such bad condition he was covered in earth in crap he had frostbite he was sunburned he was thin he was starving he was dehydrated and he was almost dead they carried him to the camp and began the process of trying to rebuild his strength and that is where the story of the the documentary ends we know that eventually Joe was brought down to a nearby civilization where he eventually received medical attention. But the challenge was not over there, of course. I understand that he received some poor medical help in the basic hospital that he ended up in. And eventually he had to be flown back to the UK. And I think his leg had to be amputated. I might be wrong about that, but I think his leg, he lost his leg, but I'm not sure. Now, about the decision to cut the rope, uh, which was considered to be quite a controversial decision by Simon. Now, Joe has always defended Simon's decision, saying that he would have done the same thing if he had been in his position. Now, I, I can't really understand, actually, why anyone would have a problem with what Simon did. Why should they both have died? It doesn't really make sense. In fact, when you think about it, by cutting the rope, Simon actually saved Joe's life or helped to save him. Because if Simon hadn't cut the rope... They both would have fallen, and it's likely that one of them would have died. Let's say that Joe would have landed on the ledge, like before, but Simon would probably have died. Um, and it's, it's unlikely that he would have landed on the ledge too. He probably would have fallen into the crevasse or hit the surface of the mountain, uh, and you know could have been seriously injured. If he'd fallen into the crevasse, he would have dragged Joe into the crevasse too, and they both would have died. So in a sense, the fact that he cut the rope uh, and survived meant that he was able to save Joe at the end. Anyway, what do you think? I'm interested to know what you think of the whole story and what you think of Simon's decision to cut the rope. 
And again, I urge you to watch the documentary film on Netflix or on DVD or one or what other platform you can find. And also consider reading the book, Joe Simpson's book, um, Touching the Void or other books, because apparently he had even more near-death experiences on mountains too, not just that one. And so let me also leave you with these thoughts. If you're going through hell, keep going. How do you climb a mountain? You do it one step at a time. How do you get down a mountain? You do you do it one step at a time too, or you slide or drag yourself or you hop, but you break the challenge into achievable steps. And also remember, nobody ever broke their leg learning English. So enjoy your studies and seize the day. And thank you very much for listening. I'll speak to you again soon on the podcast, but for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.